Thanks for tuning into a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. It's our prayer that God would use this to stir your affections for Jesus, that the Spirit would work through his word being expounded as you listen to this message. As a reminder, podcasts and audio and video are great, but they aren't a replacement for the local church family. And so if you're part of Redemption Hill, a reminder to come and join us. If you're not in Washington, D.C., we would love for you to get connected to a local church where you can be loved and cared for. If you'd like to give to the ongoing ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can do so at our website, redemptionhilldc.org. Thanks for listening. Um, I'm Bill Rydell. I'm one of the pastors here. It is great to worship with you tonight, particularly if you are new tonight, if this is your first time with us, I want to say welcome. I'm so glad that you're here. I hope you take advantage of going out to pizza with some folks later on this evening. Um, and I would love to get a connection for, card from you so we can be in touch with you. But I'm so glad that you've chosen to join us for the evening, um, especially on such a beautiful fall night. We are in the sweet spot of DC's calendar year right now. Um, just one thing I wanted to highlight before we jump into the sermon for the tonight, and that is that we have put out a, um, a questionnaire on CCB and on the app that... Um, for families, which um, uh, Mark and Sarah just walked in, but other, other, than, other than them, I don't think there's any children here tonight. And so, sorry to like single you guys out. Oh, we have one here. There's another baby. All right. Um, so we just put out a questionnaire because we as a church for the last several months have only been able to offer childcare at the 9 a.m. service, which is why there's not a lot of kids here right now. Um, but we are going, we are hoping to offer childcare again beginning October 15th, which is just two weeks from tonight. And so um, if you have kids and you would like to um, be a part of the, either of the services, it'll help us to know where people are going if you can fill that out. Or if you would like to be a part of serving in our children's ministry, um, please fill that out for us, and that has an option on there that you'd like to get connected to serve. And so we're excited for that, to be able to offer 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. for families and offer childcare for both of those slots. So please help us out by filling that out. All right, um, with that, let's pray, and we will jump right into our text for the evening. Well, Father, we um, are grateful to be able to gather today. We are grateful for the gift you give us in the community of people that is the church, in this family at Redemption Hill. We're grateful that um, for the cooler fall weather today and the chance to enjoy sunshine and, and to be able to, to experience the seasons and the changes that come. And as we open your word together this evening, Father, we are grateful that we can count on you to speak to us by your spirit. So give us ears to hear what you have for us. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Um, I get to do a fair amount of counseling as a pastor. It's something that is a privilege to be able to step into people's lives and be able to step in and try to offer any wisdom I can or help them to work through certain things in their lives. And one area that comes up periodically is things that happen in marriages as tension and friction de develops between married people. Now, I know that for many of you in the room that are single right now, you can't ever imagine that that would happen um, because marriage would be bliss for some of you, and you would have the perfect person that would serve you and love you for the rest of your life so that you can flourish. And then you get married and realize that that is the expectation that your spouse has for you. And so um, within that, there's a there is a reality that, that proximity in any relationship can bring friction. 
the closer you get, the more friction there can be. And so there's things that you need to work through. And that happens in a marriage relationship too. And, and what happens in any relationship that we have for every one of us is that we can have a tendency to slide into a transactional approach in our relationships. And so we start to evaluate what are the things, what are the things that I'm doing? What are the inputs that I'm giving into this? And what's the payoff that I'm getting? And we try to balance out, is this really worth it? And that in a marriage is destructive and toxic. It'll destroy a marriage. Um, this is why I'm, I'm doing a wedding in a couple of weeks for, for someone. And when I do weddings, I try to tell the bride and groom, often as I, te- as I preach in the wedding, in the, in the short message that I get to give at weddings, that people will give married couples or couples that are getting married advice all the time that marriage is about compromise. And that is the worst advice you could possibly follow. Because if you think that marriage is about compromise, you will always be fighting for your 51% and making sure that you're at least even. The biblical portrait of marriage is that you give yourself fully 100% into that relationship until death do you part. That's the promise you make. Well, so anyway, as, as, we, as I, Alyssa and I step in alongside couples that are experiencing friction in marriage, one of the things that we do right off the top very often is to ask the couple, Hey, tell us your story. How did you meet? What did you see in each other? What made it so that you fell in love with each other? Tell us about that. Tell us about the days leading up to your engagement. And how did you, what was the proposal like? I mean, did, did the guy do something creative and whimsical? Did he, did he do like baseball scoreboard engagement? Like, what, what was it? Tell us the story. And, and because when we retell the story of relationship, you actually get into the core of what makes it so that you fall in love with somebody. And my hope in that is that, that they'll begin to remember what it was like and the things that they see in that person and get beyond just the transactional side of relationship. Alyssa and I, every anniversary that we have, um, because she often needs the reminder of why she still loves me, um, we, every anniversary, we actually, we actually reread our wedding vows to each other um, the morning of the anniversary when we wake up because it's a reminder to us. This is the promises we've made, the commitments we've made, and that promise still holds today. The reason I bring this up is because the same thing happens to us in our spiritual lives. And if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, this happens in, in our walk with God as well. It's a relationship. And if we make our relationship with God transactional about the rules we need to follow and the things we need to do in order to earn his love and favor, or on the other side, when things go badly and we say, How, what have I done to deserve these things, God? And so we, we're holding up with like what we're putting in versus what we're getting out, then, then we ultimately can end up forgetting the promises of God and forgetting about the love of God that he's shown to us. And while Christianity makes the best of promises, it is the worst of religions to try to follow. And so tonight, we get a reminder of the promises of God. And we're going to see it, the focus in Galatians chapter 3, which is the chapter we're in. If you have a Bible, you can turn it to Galatians chapter 3. By the way, if you don't own a Bible, um, there's a book table in the entryway, and you can pick up a Bible there um, as our gift to you. So in Galatians 3, we see Abraham. We see uh, it becomes the focus in, the, in what Paul is laying out here. And Abraham's an important figure, even globally, because Abraham is the father of three major religions, of Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. And even today, people are at war over the promises made to Abraham. But what we're going to see in this text, as Abraham has talked about, is that in Christ, if you are in Christ, you are freed from the curse of the law. 
So that's the big idea tonight. It's simple, that in Christ, you're freed from the curse of the law. And this is what we read, beginning in verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then it is that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified by, before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by faith. Um, it, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant promise previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in, in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, that is a pretty long and pretty dense section of the book of Galatians. And that's part of why we're biting it all off in one big bite tonight. But there's a lot here for us. We begin by looking at Abraham, the man of faith. We need to stop before we get too far into trying to understand what this passage means to us to understand the context that it's speaking out of. So I don't want to assume that you understand the fullness of the promises that God made to Abraham. Abraham's story begins in Genesis chapter 11, and it continues all the way through Genesis chapter 25. Um, so in case you thought the section I just read was a little long for one sermon tonight, we're going to start with 14 chapters in Genesis. Um, I hope that's good for you. We'll be out of here eventually so that you can go to and Pizza with Jordan. There are three touch points for us in, that, in those 14 or 15 chapters. What we're going to look at briefly tonight is the promises that God made to Abraham. And there were three times that God came to Abraham and made covenant promises to him. The first of those is Abraham's call. That happens in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, it says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
So you like how this begins. God comes to Abram and says to him, so listen, I'm calling you to leave everything. You know, we get frustrated when God doesn't follow our careful timelines or when we feel like we have any uncertainty about the future. God comes to Abram and says to him, listen, it's time for you to leave everything you know, your home, your place, your family, everything you've ever experienced, and I'll show you where you're going when we get there. That's, that's the initial call. He doesn't even tell him where he's headed, but he says to him, I'm gonna make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. Why? So that you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so the promise of God to Abraham, the first part of that, I think for most of us, would be pretty appealing. That if God came to us and said, hey, I want to make your name great. I want you to have a name, make a name for yourself. I want people to remember you. I want you to be the kind of a person that people will remember for generations and for thousands of years, which ended up being true. We're still talking about Abraham today. And we go, great. But the reason God blessed Abraham wasn't for his own gain. And when you read Abraham's story, it didn't get easy from here. But he said to him, I'm going to bless you so that you'll be a blessing to everyone else, to all people, to all the families of the earth. And so from the beginning, it's, it's for the sake of Abraham's children's children's children that all of the families of the earth would be blessed and Abraham was the one through whom that blessing would come. Now later on in Genesis chapter 15, it had been a little while. And Abram was getting confused about this promise from God that he would have all these children and, and that his name would be great. And he came and said, Lord, you've given me no offspring. And a household servant was going to be his heir. And so the Lord came near him, and he came to him in Genesis chapter 15 and said this. He said, this man shall not be your heir. And your very own son will be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And so Abram was confused saying, Lord, you, you said I was gonna have all these kids. You said my name was gonna be great, that all the families of the earth would be blessed, but it, nothing's happened. So God says, come outside. It takes him outside and shows him the sky. And remember, I mean, if you've been around Redemption Hill, you've heard me say this before, but, but this was not a DC sky because we can walk outside and say, cool, my offspring will be like the stars in the sky. I'm gonna have three kids. <laughs> and Abram was in the middle of the desert in the ancient Near East before we had artificial light and electric light. And so he was brought outside and he would have been able to see galaxies. There were stars everywhere. It was filled with stars. And so God promised Abram that he would be blessed so that he would be a blessing. He promised him that he would have many children through faith. And it's, God, and it's Abraham's faith that was counted to him as righteousness. And that's what Paul keys in on in our, in our passage for today. Well, then, when we look ahead to chapter 17, um, we, we come to the, a place where it's been now about 25 years since the initial call and promise. And still, Abraham had no children with his wife, Sarah. And so God came to him and said to him, as far as you, you shall keep my covenant through, and, your offspring, and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh 
of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And he went on to say it'll be after eight days. And then later on in Genesis 17, God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you won't call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her, and I will bless her, and she'll be, she shall become nations, kings of peoples shall come from her. And Abraham, the man of faith, fell on his face and laughed and said, shall, shall a son, a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who's 90, bear a child? You know, God changed Sarah's name to Sarah, and Sarah means princess. His promise was that there would be a child. And God came through on the promise that Sarah would bear Isaac. And, and that one child set a trajectory for the rest of Scripture. All of Genesis traces this theme of the seed of the offspring. And it goes all the way back to Genesis 3, that when the first people, Adam and Eve, sinned and rebelled against God, that God said right from the start in Genesis chapter 3, there will be an offspring, a seed of the woman who would destroy the serpent. That they would be at war with each other, the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. But the offspring of the woman would destroy the snake in the end. All of Genesis traces the seed, but now it comes through Abraham, and that would extend to Isaac and to Jacob, the patriarchs of the Israelites, that, those, that Jacob's 12 sons would become the 12 tribes of Israel. The promise would extend then through Moses and through David. But Abraham here is the one that Paul keys in on. And why is he so important? Well, there's something vitally important to see in Abraham. We see this in Romans chapter four as well, where we read, but the words it was counted to him, where God said it's, where it says that he believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. They, those words weren't written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised up for our justification. So Paul is saying here that Abraham shows us that God is concerned with our hearts and, it's, and that belief in God and in following God, being his people, has always been a matter of faith, not law. Abraham's story shows us so much about God and about the gospel. It shows us that God's work is unexpected. His timing is unexpected. Martin Luther said here, to reason what is more, to reason, to our reason, what is more absurd, foolish, improbable, yes, impossible, than when God said to Abraham that he should have a son by the barren body of his wife, Sarah? So if we will follow the judgment of reason, God sets forth in absurd and impossible things when he sets out for us the articles of the Christian faith. Indeed, it seems to reason an absurd and foolish thing that the dead shall rise again on the last day that Christ, the Son of God, was conceived and carried in the womb of the Virgin Mary, that he was born, that he suffered the most reproachful death on the cross, that he was raised up again, and that he now sits at the right hand of God the Father, and that he has power, all power, in heaven and on earth. To our own reason, to the ways that we would plan things, those things seem ludicrous and impossible, but this is the gospel. 
This is the good news of the Christian faith, is that all of those things are true, that Christ did come, God in the flesh, born to a vir- in a virgin womb from Mary, that he was suffered a reproachful death on the cross, that he was raised up again, and he now sits at the right hand of God, and it's through that death that we receive right standing in God's sight. And how do you come to it? It's by faith. It's that we are given righteousness, just like Abraham. And what about the law? Well, it's, that's introduced in our, back in, Genesis, or in Galatians chapter 3 as well tonight. And Paul contrasts what came through the law 430 years after this. The Israelites were in Egypt. They were enslaved in Egypt. And as in their slavery, they cried out to God and he answered them and he brought them out of Egypt and saved them and redeemed them, paid the price to free them. They were given the law. In Exodus chapter 19, you can go and read that if you have time or would have desire to tonight. In Exodus 19, they came to the foot of Mount Sinai and Moses went up as their representative, as the Israelites' representative. And God made an offer to move in with them, said, I, you will be my people I will be your God. You'll be my treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And Moses brought that to the, to the elders of Israel and the elders of the, of the people said, yes, we're in. And so God gave them the law as the household rules for the nation of Israel to live under. The law was never seen as an endpoint, even by itself or in the prophets, but, but it was given to the nation of Israel. And so what do we learn here in, in Galatians chapter 3 about the law? Um, well, there's eight points. We're going to put them all on the screen at once. Relax. Um, you don't need to scramble to write these down. We'll find a way to get this on CCB later this week. But... I wanted to put these up. I also laughed with the staff this week as we were preparing for today and doing, we always study for the sermon together. I was like, guys, I think I ended up with like a 24 point sermon this week. Um, but so we're gonna take this all as one, all eight points. So that's okay. Um, but this is what we see. I want you to, wanted you to be able to see the fullness of what's said about the law here because I think it's surprising to us. It was surprising to me. I think when we think about the law generally, we think about the old covenant, we want to think good things about the progression of what God has done among his people. And then you see how it's talked about here in Galatians, and there's stuff we have to grapple with. So what do we learn about the law here in Galatians 3? Well, we learn that the law was given through angels as intermediaries, that there was a buffer, and it came through Moses as, as an intermediary. We learned that the law was, that it preserved people for a promise to come. That's what we see in in verse 22, that that the main function of the law was to act as a restrainer on sin. It was given because of transgression or sin. and, And in that, that the law can't give life. It's not, it doesn't guarantee an inheritance. It's not the ultimate end because the law cannot make anyone righteous. That's what we see in verse 11. No one is justified before God by the law because for the righteous shall live by faith. That's quoting Habakkuk, an Old Testament prophet. And so even in the Old Covenant, there was, it, was, there, it was known that the law couldn't make anyone righteous, that righteousness only came by faith. In verse 10, we see that reliance on the law brings a curse which is straight out of Deuteronomy. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. And in that, the law is not a matter of faith, 
but a, but a matter of obedience. Now, we need to feel the weight of this. I, I think often people talk about Genesis 3 as being the curse. So we talk about the, about the human rebellion and sin, and we say that the, what happened in the garden it was that the, that the first man and woman were cursed by God under sin. You need to read that passage a little more carefully, though. Because in that passage, when you read it, the word curse is never used toward people, toward those who bear God's image and likeness. In Genesis 3.15, we read, cursed is the serpent because of what he had done, that he was cursed to crawl on his ground all the days of his life, and that the offspring of the woman would destroy him in the end. And cursed is the ground because of the sin of the man, that he would eat it by the sweat of his brow, he would work it. And so, that, so there, there's this idea of work being harder. But the man and the woman are never cursed. They're given consequences for their sin. They're, they're, there's an end point to their lives. Death is introduced as a stop to their sin. But the curse is extended to creation. We know that in, in Romans 8, we read that all of creation is groaning, longing for its redemption that's going to come when it is freed from the curse it was put under by our sin. And so when we see this earth groaning and tragedy occurring because of natural disaster, we know that the brokenness in this world is the result of humanity's rebellion. But, but humanity was promised redemption, that they would have offspring, that a seed would be protected, and ultimately one of the those offspring would destroy the serpent. And so what is it that puts us under a curse? All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, curse be everyone who does not abide by all the things written by the book of the law and do them. What puts us under a curse is trying to stand under the law. And it's not just Paul here. This is quoting Deuteronomy and quoting Habakkuk. Within the Galatian churches, people were trying to add legal requirements, particularly circumcision, to the, as a necessity to the promise of God in Christ. And Paul looked at that and said, why are we turning the clock back to the law? Why are we going back to things we know we can't live under? Why are we going back to something in a system that only has brought curse? It only shows us our disobedience and our own brokenness. It doesn't bring any righteousness to us. It's protected enough because it hasn't allowed people to be as wicked as they could be, but it does, it's, does nothing to bring life. It does nothing to guarantee an inheritance. Why would we turn the clock back to that? And so here in Galatians 3, he says, let's turn the clock back farther. And look at the promises made to Abraham. Those promises were not canceled out by a law that came later. And Abraham, in Genesis 12, was an uncircumcised man who was brought into the land by God's calling. The law didn't cancel out the promise that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. Now, the problem for us here is this doesn't skip us, is that we do the same thing because we love law. We drift toward legalism because we want to be in control of knowing whether or not we're actually righteous, whether or not we're actually in right standing before God. We drift naturally toward transactionalism in relationships because we want to know if we've done enough. But Paul's point here is we've tried it and it's never worked. Look at the history of all of humanity. It has never worked. 
And look at Israel. Israel, and this is something that, that we may need the corrective of now in, in the United States of America, in D.C., in 2017, is that there were hundreds of years of a nationalized religious system in Israel where God's law was enforced at the highest levels of government and the temple as they were fused together. And you know what happened in those hundreds of years? Well, the prophets end up speaking out against the Israelites because the poor were still oppressed. Wars were still fought unjustly. Injustice was perpetuated at every level, up to the highest of seats. Sin and moral corruption were pervasive everywhere and people were still selfish and cutthroat and miserable. Listen, it's easy for us to embrace a myth of human progress and ignore the reality that human history shows us. But in Galatians 3, we're being shown clearly the law cannot shape our hearts. It limits the damage, but it also exposes our brokenness and fallenness. And yet we continue, every one of us, to turn our relationship with God toward the law. Trying to earn his favor and our standing, trying to, trying to earn our holiness. And doing so is a terrible curse because it puts a weight on us we will never be able to stand beneath. But there's hope tonight too. That redemption is in Christ alone. This is the third major theological term in the last three weeks for us as a church as we're walking through Galatians. In chapter two, we saw the concept of justification spelled out, that right standing before God, that justification comes through faith alone, by God's grace alone. That's how we achieve our right standing. We saw sanctification last week, that we're made holy and cleansed. And this week, we see redemption, that we have been purchased, particularly out of slavery to sin and set free to live. That's the concept of redemption, what Christ has accomplished for us. And that's, verse 13 is the core to everything in this section. And it is, it is, my hope tonight is that this will breathe relief and life and healing into you. That, that, that when it says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Redemption, Paul counters the law at every point by showing how Jesus is better. Um, Noah, we can put up all eight points again so that it counts as one. It's sneaky. This is what we see. The law was given through angels as intermediaries. Jesus is the ultimate mediator of God's promise, God himself in the flesh. The law preserved a people for a promise to come. Jesus welcomes us as the people of promise, as sons of Abraham. As we read right at the top, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith that we are brought in. It is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. The law cannot give life, but Jesus gives us life. The law doesn't guarantee an inheritance for us, but Jesus guarantees us an inheritance. 
We read this in Colossians chapter one as well, that, that Jesus has transferred us, that he has qualified us for a share in the inheritance of the saints in light, that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so that, this is what happens in what Christ has done for us, that if we are in Jesus, we have been guaranteed an inheritance in God's kingdom, a share of all of the new heavens and the new earth in God's presence for eternity brought into the kingdom of light given redemption and the forgiveness of sin the law is not the ultimate end but Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise that's why when he was asked have you come to cancel out the law and Jesus said no the word of God is eternal and there is not not a single jot that is going to disappear from God's law, but he came to fulfill it in our place and on our behalf. The law can't make anyone righteous, but in Jesus we are justified by faith, which is says in verse eight in the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, give us right standing before God by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Reliance on the law brings us under a curse, but Jesus became a curse to set us free from the curse. He took it on himself. That's what was happening on the cross, is that the one person who has lived perfectly under the law, that hadn't violated any of the 613 commandments of the Torah and had lived in perfect righteousness, took our place on the cross, bearing the weight and curse of our sin so that he could give us his righteousness. And the law is not a matter of faith, but obedience, while redemption brings adoption, and they come by faith alone. If you don't hear anything else tonight, please hear that in Christ, you are freed from the curse of the law. That in Christ, you are freed from the curse of perfection. So what does it look like to live in freedom from that curse? This is something I really wrestled with this week. There's such beauty and intensity of the theology here, but I don't want it to just stay in the clouds and intellectual and cerebral and heady. So I've really wrestled with what is, how, what are ways that we're imprisoned? How does the law imprison us practically? What are ways, what are some practical like handles that we can grab onto to understand the, the weight that gets lifted off of us so that you can experience the lightness of the freedom that comes in Jesus Christ? And as I wrestled with those things this week, I was brought back over and over again to one characteristic that I see in slave people, maybe more than anything else. And that is the reality of toxic shame that each one of us carries. We all have it. We all struggle with shame. It's one of the most universal and primitive emotions we experience. And we see that even in the garden with the first man, the first response to sin and brokenness was shame. It was to hide, to cover up, feeling exposed and naked. And, and we, that's still the response that we have internally now. The only people who don't have, experience shame are people who lack the capacity for empathy and for human connection. And so you have two choices tonight. You can either fess up to experiencing shame 
or you're admitting that you're a sociopath. Every one of us wrestles with it, but we're afraid to talk about it. And the less we talk about it, the more control it has over us. And so what is shame? Well, one definition for us is that shame is a deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. And so you feel exposed and humiliated. A counselor named Ed Welch said it even more strongly, saying you are disgraced because you acted less than human, you were treated as less than human, or you're associated with something less than human, and there are witnesses. Um, Brene Brown says about shame that there are a couple of very helpful ways to think about shame. First, that shame is a fear, the fear of disconnection. We are psychologically, emotionally, cognitively, and spiritually hardwired for connection and love and belonging. Connection, along with love and belonging, two expressions of connection, is why we are here. And it's what gives purpose and meaning to our lives. Shame is the fear of disconnection. It's the fear that something we've done or failed to do, an ideal that we've not lived up to, or a goal that we've not accomplished makes us unworthy of connection. Shame drives us to isolation. Again, just like in the garden. To hide, to be afraid to be around people. And that destroys us from within. In fact, most of the things that we do to deal with our shame actually makes it worse. We isolate ourselves. Think about this. When you feel ashamed, do you usually want to be around people? No, we, we hide. We isolate. We pull back. And then, often, we work harder to try to earn our right standing. We pull back because we want to regroup and make sure that when we encounter people again, we can get it right. But relying on law in our own righteousness will only drive shame more deeply within us because we will always fall short. This is why we're so scared that somebody will really fully know us because we don't feel like if people fully know us, they'll actually love us. And yet we know that the love that we experience is superficial because they don't really know us. And to be honest, reformed folks, if you're in the reformed theological streams, which I am, that's my team, we are the worst at this. Because we don't know how to actually deal with shame and we don't know how to actually process shame and that comes out because we, I think there's times when we want so hard to push against a prosperity gospel that we end up in a poverty gospel and feel like we always have to be walking around discouraged and with our heads down and feeling ashamed about something. And so we like create things to be ashamed of, but that becomes a law in itself. So if you're reformed like me, we're a greater mess than everybody else. But listen, Jesus can free you from your shame. He can heal you. And do you know how he heals us? It's because when he brings healing to us, he also embeds us in t inside of a community that he's called the church. Because you can never heal from shame, from, from a wound that deals with other people in relationships when you're in isolation. It's going to take relationships to bring healing to that. And so he puts us in, in the midst of a community that is equally dependent on him and people that are equally messed up. 
Now, there's a healthy aspect to shame because if we embrace the things that we're ashamed of and admit them and process through them, then we can actually come to a point where we realize that we're limited human beings and and embrace our limitations. But if you find yourself ashamed of your limitations, then you're not, then, then what you are ultimately saying in shame about your limitations is saying, you know what, I will not be satisfied until I am infinite in God himself. And that will drive shame deeper and deeper within you. Listen, Jesus outed all of us on the cross that every one of us is limited. It took God coming down and taking on flesh to stand in our place for our sin, for us to have the hope of redemption. And we are severely limited, every one of us. And here we are together. With all of our limitations and with a savior who has unlimited love. We stand together to bear witness to his beauty and we rely together on his healing power. And so what does it mean to live in freedom from the curse? And, how do, and what does it mean to be freed from shame? It's to know that just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, then, then we can know that it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham brought into this new family. We're gonna spend all of next week talking about adoption and what it is to be the family of God together. But scripture, foreseeing God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then it's those of faith who are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So listen, you need to hear tonight that in Christ, you can live free and you will never be put to shame. This is the promise we have in Romans chapter 10, is that there's no distinction, that everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Do you hear that? Everyone who believes in Jesus has the promise from God that you will not be put to shame in the end. And there's no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So you can live in that freedom and not live under the weight of the shame that you carry. And God can bring you healing from that. You need to hear this tonight. We, we just heard that, that God took Abraham by the hand and led him outside to look at the, at the sea of stars above him where he could see galaxies above him and said to him, Abraham, look up, count the stars if you can, so shall your offspring be. And do you hear this? That Know then that it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Do you understand what that means? When it says that, that it, scripture foreseeing God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, so in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That means that when Abraham, when Abraham was taken by the hand by God to look at the stars in the sky thousands of years ago in the middle of the desert in the Middle East, that, that when he was promising you, that in Christ you are the stars in the sky that you are the one that God was asking him to number if he could, that you are the one that when God said, through you all people are going to be blessed and there's going to be a family that, you're brought, that you're, is built through you, that if you're in Christ, that was a promise about you. 
and that God was preaching the gospel, the good news to Abraham that was related directly to what he was going to do to save you, to redeem you, to justify you and sanctify you and bring you into his family as a son and as a daughter. That God's blessing is on you and it's come to you through Christ. You wanna know how you're, if you're wrestling with shame tonight, think about this. What do you imagine God's face to be like as he looks at you? I think for most of us, I know for myself, often, if I'm honest about that, I know the theological answer that I'm about to give you, but often when I think about that, if I'm honest, I, I would picture disappointment, frustration, maybe anger, You need to hear this tonight as you wrestle with your own shame. That if you're in Christ, then he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And that's why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Listen, what does justification by grace alone through faith alone mean to us? What does redemption by faith alone in Christ alone mean to us? It means that if you are in Christ, he counts you a brother, a sister, and that when he looks at you, he is not ashamed of you, that, that he is singing your name among his people. That is God's face when he looks at you through Christ. He is singing your name in the midst of his people. Listen, church, our natural drift is always gonna be toward legalism. And it just entraps us. It'll bind us up and enslave us. It'll drive us deeper into shame and isolation and fear. And that's why we need tonight's text. In Christ, you're freed from the curse of the law. Let's stop turning back to it. Let's stop putting each other under a further curse and shaming each other. Let's, let's be a body and a people that, that are willing to say, you know what? I am messed up. I am severely limited. I am going to let you down and it's gonna wreck me inside. And yet, Somehow, I'm deeply loved by God because we have a great savior. And to be able to embrace each other in the love of Christ. Now listen, just like a marriage that sours because it's fixated on expectations, living up to the right standards, getting the right rules, getting my fair share, living transactionally, the greatest need in that marriage is to remember the promise that was made. In Christ, we are given the fullness of the promise of God. Everything that was promised to Abraham is given to us. It's not contingent on a law that came 430 years later. So live free this week. My hope tonight is that you would hear the voice of Christ over you that you would be able to hear and believe and embrace that Christ redeemed you from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for you, that you've received the promise of the Holy Spirit through faith, 
that, that God has justified you and preached the gospel about you to Abraham thousands of years ago, and that in, if you're in Christ, that he is singing your name among the congregation, that that's his face when he looks at you as he looks at you with all of the pleasure that he looks at Christ. If we're saturated in the love of God, we'll finally be freed to extend that love to each other and to others. So that's the freedom we're called to, church. Not the chains and bondage of our own achievement of righteousness. We will never be able to work out our own redemption. Otherwise, Christ would not have had to come. But we can let go and live in freedom. Father, would you help us to do that? We are broken. We are hurt. And we don't even want to admit it to each other. We put up airs that we've got things together and put up a facade that we've got things right. And we look at people around us and imagine that their lives are, don't deal with the same issues that ours do and that, they've got, that they're pulled together more than we are and we don't even see the cracks that are underneath for them. Father, would you help us to just admit that we need you? Would you free us from working to try to achieve our standing with you and to rest fully on Christ? Would you, would you send your spirit into our hearts now to, to start to peel back the layers of shame that have encased us, that, that, that isolate us, and to open us up, even though it's going to hurt and make us more sensitive and vulnerable, that, that we could be healed by your presence and be healed as we experience love in the community that you've put us into. Father, we need you. We're so grateful that you've made a way for us. You've given us hope in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.